Welcome to Some Assembly Required, a bi-weekly design podcast where we will be covering a range of topics from tech, industrial and product design, and sustainability. I'm Pablo Samoyles. And I'm George Wyeth. We're both product designers currently studying at the University of Sussex. This is episode four, data privacy. Last episode, we discussed tech from space. Be sure to check out that episode and others after this. So to begin this discussion, we have to mention the three major tech monopolies. That is Google, Apple, and Facebook. The big ones. They're the big ones. Obviously, Amazon are absolutely one too. Um, But when it comes to direct user data manipulation, they are kind of less there. Yeah, less digital as well. Exactly. They're a huge proponent of the indirect stuff. They own half the internet, and we're not giving them a pass. (laughs) But we're just not focusing on them today. Amazon's a... So I think it's worth beginning with Apple um, because Apple really sets a precedent to show what Google is trying to do. Yeah, they're they're often direct competitors. Yeah, and the kind of ecosystem, that's what we're going to really focus on, that Apple has developed is something Google is really trying to emulate and Facebook has kind of edged towards, but not really. So Apple truly nailed their ecosystem. You've got your laptops, iPads, iPhones, and a whole bunch of other services that just work seamlessly together. Mm. And it's something that other companies have looked onto and kind of said, A, we want to be able to join that market, but also have our own competitor to that market. Yeah, you see a lot of everything nowadays on these sort of companies is aiming for that one seamless experience. And Apple, I would say, are still at the top of it. Yeah, but Google's coming close. Yeah. Now, I do need to preface this by saying that both George and I are complete Apple fanboys, so... Relatively, yeah. Relatively. I use use Apple services over other ones. Exactly. Now, that being said, we're going to be honest here. Uh, We've put aside our kind of preferences. But yeah, to get started just kind of on the background information for Apple is, yeah, because of that ecosystem, people just have this tendency to just buy the next Apple product. Oh, I need a new phone. They don't Mm. even consider anything else. I do exactly that. Yeah. Also, because it's so easy, you got if you get a new iPhone nowadays, you literally don't have to do anything. You just log in on a new device, and all your stuff is there exactly. in the same place you left it. Apple makes it incredibly easy, so they make basically no reason to not do it. Yeah, and they've been able to survive the last decade by kind of producing these products that have a two to three year old lifespan. So you buy an iPhone after two years, you buy a new one, um, and it's a new purchase rate. A lot of people are putting a lot of money into Apple. It's why Apple was kind of known and kind of shaded for being not so good because it's high expense quite frequently. Um, But interestingly, that all changed with the release of iPhone X. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like they're not not innovating as fast as they used to. Their kind of innovation, I feel like, has slowed down. Yes, it has. And the main, I mean, obviously, there are probably many reasons for that. But I think from a kind of economy standpoint, that really hit with the fact that bending the OLED screen on the iPhone X, so the bottom of the screen kind of bends in, Mm. which gives that really seamless look, that upped the price of the phone considerably. And it was because the people they were making their screens were charging Apple a premium, and as we kind of discussed this in electric vehicles with Tesla and batteries, you just can't really do anything unless you're producing it yourself. So the iPhone hit the $1,000 mark and really suffered as a result. Yeah, a lot of people bought it as a kind of as the centenary, oh, it's an exciting, quite different phone. But I think that was the only market they really hit. 
Yeah. And they didn't hit the market of people just going, oh, I'll upgrade now. They lost the mass market. Uh, so they've now kind of bent more towards a realistic kind of four to five year upgrade cycle. Which is much better for the environment. It is much better for the environment. And as such, their phones are kind of getting more expensive. So you now see kind of a $1,200 phone, which of course is ridiculously priced if you're replacing mm. it after two years. But if it's going to last five, that's not terrible. Um, and to build profits, because after all, capitalism, uh, they're moving towards services. And Apple News, Apple Arcade, Apple Music, Apple TV. You can tell that's where Apple's putting a lot of energy. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're bringing out so many of these different services nowadays. Yeah. It's... That's their focus rather than in the past when they were bringing out new iPods and iPhones and Macs. And yeah, and that's this. not to say that the devices don't matter. It's just that as an Apple user, they're more interested in you using their services as opposed to having their products. Mm. Because having their products at this point is just kind of a given. Yeah, that, yeah, that's true. I think what's yeah. also interesting with this and the innovation side of things is I think that's where a lot of innovation is leading to now. I mean, I was listening to something the other day and they were basically pointing out how innovation does generally slow down and that actually smartphones are probably at the point where they are going to slow down. Yeah. Like the biggest innovations in like planes happened in the space of 50 years. And then in the past 50 years, not really much has happened because there's not the need for it anymore. Yeah, just small changes and improvements in kind of how efficient they are, but mm. nothing beyond that. And the services, which is what exactly. they're now focusing on. So that's the background to Apple. Now, Apple doesn't monetize data. Uh, it's kind of one of the things that they've always held out. And they're very about security, which is also kind of what comes with their mm -hmm. higher price points. So obviously, when you buy an Android device, which not not the flagship ones, obviously, but many smaller Android devices can be cheap because they know they can make money off of you, essentially. Yes. And the Apple Premium arguably isn't a premium if you take that into account. Apple Didn't Apple even refuse to let the FBI get into a, someone's phone? Yes, before? it was um, multiple domestic terrorists in the US have had iPhones, and the FBI have asked for Apple to open them up so that they can you know, look for information as to why they did what they did or potentially what, could, what else could happen, and Apple has refused every time. Yeah, so there is an element of Apple standing a bit more firmly against yeah. user data. Apple but. has made, they've made privacy one of their big things. They've made security one of their big things. Um, although, of course, conversely, they have very close relationships with China. Mm. And it could all be a front for all we know. Oh, there's so much about, I mean, this entire episode is, we could be completely missing what's really going on. Because exactly. there's going to be so much going on underneath and in the backgrounds that just us as this the is don't know about. what we know on the surface. Mm. Apple is a privacy-focused company. Now, with that background in the way, we can move to Google, who've always been service-oriented. And they've made most of what they offer as a free service, and primarily as a company made money as an advertisement platform. Google Ads power most of the advertisement on the internet, um, and they have data on all these people, which they can use to offer targeted ads without selling or compromising that information. So this is something to make very clear because a lot of people on the kind of Apple side say, oh yeah, Google sells data. They don't. Google is just as secure with their data as anyone else. The difference is they use it. Yeah. So given Google's history in the service industry, they've been trying to build an ecosystem of their own with G Suite. So they've had you know Google Drive, Gmail, Docs, and they want everyone 
to now be using those on Google Pixel phones with Pixel tablets and Chromebooks and Google Home smart devices. So they're very much going the Apple route. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that Google are focusing a lot more on the actual kind of documents and data side. I mean, that is what they do better yeah. than Apple. But like that's what they're focusing on. And there is a slight difference in that for Apple. Apple are focusing more on the hardware, whereas I feel like, I mean, as we were saying, that they're moving towards the yeah. services, but it's it's more of an entertainment thing for Apple, whereas Google is more of a efficiency and productivity. Yeah. I, I just find it very interesting that these two empires are basically crisscrossing in direction. One yeah. is the king of one, one is the king of the other, and they're both kind of melging into the other's territory because they want to provide this kind of uni universal service. Um, and actually, this was very interestingly a, another podcast called The Tortoise Podcast that I quite enjoy. They did a whole mini-series on essentially treating large tech companies as countries. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and so they looked at Apple, they looked at Google, and they said, if this was a country as opposed to a corporation, what would be their constitution? What would be their laws? Who would be their leader? All these kind of questions that we really, really ask much of from countries you know we we expect so much from governments and we have such high kind of standards and criticisms of laws and the way things work that we should be applying to corporations but we don't mm. and i think that's something to kind of especially as we move on to some of the much worse cases of data manipulation it's something to think about yeah it's a really interesting way of looking at it i've not even thought about yeah, it's fascinating countries um i'll remember to link it possibly, or if not, search the Tortoise podcast. They've got some episodes on that. Uh, so Google, you know, they're catching up to Apple. And that being said, I think given the open nature of Android, it's being an open source platform. And of course they'd license it to the larger manufacturers and the size of Google. I don't think it's ever gonna get to the same point of seamlessness. Um, and really they're just gonna really profit and po possibly get bigger than Apple on the point that the services are free. Yeah, and I think also there's an element of it, as I said, with hardware that you can get both. Like I use Google's G Suite fairly frequently when I'm trying to, you know, work, collaborate with yes. people. We're currently using Google Docs right now. We are, yeah. Both on Apple laptops, Apple Yeah, no, Macs. that's the other thing. So it's G Suite's designed to kind of work with everything, but they are also trying to push the user on their own devices narrative. Mm. I don't think they're ever going to restrict it, unlike what Apple has done. But they definitely want you to kind of use G Suite. When they use Google Drive, you know, they're always suggesting, hey, use Google Photos. And they, they just want you to essentially look to them as the platform for everything. Um, whereas Apple doesn't need to do that because its users just assume it is already. <laughs> you know, Apple, yeah. like, why would you use Google Photos if you've got your iCloud? And that's a good question, really. And the only advantage of Google Photos is it's free but is it free when it comes to data? Do you you have to pay for more storage space? Not for Google Photos. Not for Google Photos. Okay, that's just Google Photos, you can drive. have unlimited storage at like high quality, so they, they slightly downsize your images, but for you know any kind of web publication, it's not noticeable. It becomes noticeable if you're printing, but you yeah. know, no one printing is storing their things on the cloud. So the third competitor here is Facebook. Now, Facebook definitely has the most evil origin, yeah. Uh, Harvard University, Mark Zuckerberg, it was a kind of women-ranking, dating-esque social media for private university male students, and 
It, it, it formed, it was a kind of idea between a, two brothers and Zuck. And it was this, if we build a social profile space for all the hot girls on Harvard, then we can decide which ones we want to date. And then Zuck abused it terribly by putting everyone's face up there and made it so you can rape people or like people. I didn't know any of that when you wrote all this down into here and I was reading this and it, it's disgusting. It, sh- it shocks me that it even managed to progress on from that point and, and managed to hide and lose that kind of start. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, the second Zuckerberg realized what he had created as in the system that it could be, he got rid of Okay. So th- this was more of a kind of a stupid project that he did and then he realized the power of what he'd created could be used for something else. Yes, it was more than a stupid project. It was a bad project. Like, objectively, <laughs> a terrible thing. An Un- unethical project. Unethical. But the way that people adopted it, he saw could be used as a general social media as opposed yeah. to something kind of specific and nefarious. That being said, there are quotes of him saying awful things about people's data, calling people idiots for trusting him and giving him everything. Uh, but either way, if you, you should, you know, watch The Social Network. It's a good film about this. Starring Jesse Eisenberg. Anyway, so Facebook portrays itself as being free, and of course they make money through advertising just like Google. Um, but differently is the depth of information that people give them. It's information we're willingly giving them. Yeah. And it's ridiculous. You know. So every post, every comment, every private message, every like, every browsing characteristic, they're all saved and analyzed. Yeah, and all your just basic basic data, your name, your date of birth, your where you live, who you're friends with, all of that. Everything. All of it builds up a picture. And I have experience using Facebook advertising. I've used it for work. And obviously when, you know, you, you want to be able to target ads, it's definitely the better method of doing it. But the level of targeting you can do on Facebook is insane. So you can specify, you know, of course, the regular things so like age ranges, gender ranges, um, countries, locations. But you can also do level of education, place of education. So I could target ads to Sussex students specifically. Um, income levels, you can target ads to only people who make above or certain below amounts of money. And they, and they know that. And they know that. You can target to people who frequently use Instagram. You can target to people who've never used Instagram. You can target to people who have mentioned a certain word or have not mentioned a certain word. You can target to people who vote conservatively, who vote liberally. You can target to people who are aware of issues. Like they literally have sections where you pick issues that people will care about and they can best assume the people who will care about them based on what you write. So it's not only, you know, you don't have to work in conservation to care about conservation, but Facebook mm. knows you care about conservation based on what you share and like. Yeah. And then they can advertise conservation-y things to you. Or something much more nefarious. They can destroy elections, and we're going to get into that. Oh, yes, we certainly will. <laughs> we certainly will. We certainly will. Um, so yeah, either way, that's awful. And there was a really interesting article that I read um, on Medium about a guy who kind of had a prank war with his roommate. Right, they were both university students and they went back and forth kind of pranking each other. And eventually he decided to run local targeted Facebook ads only to his roommate. <laughs> so one of the targeting levels is you could put in email addresses and if those are connected to Facebook accounts, it'll target it to them. Oh wow, okay. Right? And th- that's a way of essentially if you have a you know large mailing list, you can also run ads to those people. Yeah. But also that's terrible. So this guy put in his roommate's email address 
And he ran ads. Of course, if you're only targeting one person, it's very, very cheap. He ran ads specifically to this person about things that that person had said to him in confidence. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the guy got, you know, completely paranoid and it went on and on and on. And eventually he, the last ad was like, ever feel like your roommate is running targeted ads to just you? <laughs> you know, it's, it's hilarious. It's funny, but it's showing how how misused this could be. Yeah. And That's a prank? Of course, that got big. Facebook saw it. You can now only target a minimum of 20 people. Still, 20 is not a big number Yeah, in the grand scheme exactly. of things. And there's still it's... a loophole. You can put in 20 emails. If 19 of them are female and you select male as the gender you want to target, you bypass it. And that oh, is okay, still possible yeah. today. I could do that right now. Yeah. Anyway, so... The big catch with Facebook is not only do they have a disgusting amount of data, but they also sell that information onto their partners. Yeah. One of those partners was Cambridge Analytica. Famously. Famously Cambridge Analytica. But I, there's so many. Just before we get to that, one more thing is that a calculation was done and essentially Facebook should be paying every single one of its users $3.50 every month to use the platform. Just for the amount of data they get. Yep. Of arguably more than that. Mm. But that would be the minimum value, which essentially means you can sign up to this platform and they pay you to use it. Like, if you think about how ridiculous that is, you realize exactly what money they're making. Yeah. And that would be $8.3 billion a month that they have to pay out to us, the people. So, yes, on to Cambridge Analytica, the infamous Cambridge Analytica. Um... They're not a company anymore. Gladly. For many Luckily, luckily they're, not, they're not here anymore. Yep. Um, although, I, 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 I would bet money on the fact that there are companies doing the same thing that they did. Oh, absolutely. We just don't know of their names yet. And arguably the fact that they're not kind of actively, we're not aware of them, it's probably a good thing because it means that whatever they're doing isn't to the scale of what Cambridge Analytica did. Mm. I was at what I've learned from Cambridge Analytica's mistakes. Exactly. <laughs> in being public about it. Because they were quite public about it. They were. They were very proud of it. Yes. So Alexandra Nix, who was the, was the CEO or the founder of Cambridge Analytica. An incredibly evil man. Yeah. And yeah, he was very, he was very public and proud of his use of data. I think he gave a TED talk, didn't he? I think he might have done, actually. Yes. Yeah. Or uh, yeah, it was a large. A it was a large seminar at some. It might have been a like a business convention, you sort of thing, or something, something along those lines. Yes. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, he was very proud of what he did. Maybe not so much now. I'm not sure. Oh, I don't think he has any remorse. He didn't. He didn't look like he has remorse in any of the court hearings. But who knows? So a lot of this um, kind of research that I've done on this topic came from the Great Hack documentary on Netflix. Which, I'm going to preface the rest of this conversation by saying everyone who is listening to this podcast right now must watch The Great Hack. Yep. If you've got Netflix, that should be on your list. It's a... And if you don't have Netflix, use someone else's. <laughs> yeah. You're, we'll you're, you've, you've got a way. We all do that anyway. So I'd wanted to watch it for a while. And yeah, for part of research of this ep uh, episode, I made sure I did. And it's it's mind-blowing to watch. It really it is. Really it really is. I, I finished it and I just wanted to delete my Facebook account. <laughs> Understandable. 
And that's kind of what put me in the position of clearing out my Facebook near entirely. Yeah, it so was it's... Yeah, it's, it's a weird one. So obviously, they're, they're mainly well famously known for their Trump election campaign yeah. work. And it was SCL... Um, and Cambridge Analytica. It's so all sort S- of the same. SCL is the parent company. Yeah. But basically, they're the same thing. Yeah, they're all kind of one and the same. And during that time, they claimed to have 5,000 data points on every single US voter. That is a ridiculously high number. Yep. And they all came from Facebook. All of them came from Facebook and some very clever algorithms, I suppose. Yep. So they basically, they, they used these data points to categorize everyone on how they would vote and what their personality traits are what they care about as you said and they use these to basically identify what they they call as persuadables which are basically the people who are sort of on the fence yeah not the people that are dead certain to be voting for their candidate or not the people that are dead certain to not vote for their candidate they're going for the people who haven't made their mind up yet or maybe have kind of made their mind up but aren't convinced exactly that's that's what they were targeting you know these persuadables there's at least 70,000 of them millions of them millions of them exactly and so they they knew who they needed to target and they even come out and said that you know they had their Cambridge Analytica team working on this and they would literally be like right we need to target that state for that long, with that many people, it was it was tighter than states though. It was targeting zip codes. Yeah, it was much oh, much yeah, yeah. tighter than states. Uh, and yeah, you can target zip codes. Shockingly, um, so yeah, they their goal was to make these people see the world the way Trump wanted them to, essentially. Mm. And it was called Project Alamo. Yeah, and they were spending one million dollars per day on Facebook ads throughout this campaign. It's a ridiculous amount. That's just on Facebook ads. That's just on Facebook. So they had set up this whole campaign as th- this was more part of the Trump team using Cambridge Analytica's, you know, techniques. But they used this team to create this crooked Hillary campaign. That's that's what they did. Yeah. They created this whole thing and they made so many little videos and images and they just filtered them into the internet. It didn't ha- they didn't Specify where the source was. They didn't. They these images weren't being posted and shared where it had like a little tag at the top saying this was the Trump campaign. It didn't say that anyway. It was just filtered into the internet and just let spread. Yeah, and of course it did because the persuadables were persuadable, and it was just mass manipulation of everything we know about democracy. Mm. And it's interesting to point out that one of the reasons they that Cambridge Analytica even picked up on this being a market they could dominate, I suppose, was actually from the Obama campaign. Yeah. Now, the Obama campaign in 2008 won over the younger generations, I think, in particular, through its use of social media. Yeah. Now, it was a completely different way of using social media. Obama wasn't the first president to have a Twitter account. Oh, okay, was he? Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. So yeah, it was it wasn't using social media in the way that the Trump campaign and Cambridge Analytica did, but it was it showed how useful a platform this could be for campaigning. Exactly. And they they very quickly kind of realized that 
as all marketing has been moving digital and moving towards being able to target things, you can do so much more damage that they should do it politically too. Mm. Obviously, the, yeah, obviously, these tools could be used for good. Sure, there's a questionable good, but like the environment. Yeah. These things could be used. You, you could find the persuadables on climate change. And exactly. Persuade them the correct way. I mean, that might already be happening. As I said, there's, there's so much of this sort of stuff that goes on behind closed doors that we don't know about. That might be happening. I'm not sure. It could be. Hopefully it is. But it also could be happening from the fossil fuel industries and the aviation industries to go oh, against it, climate it, it change. It is happening with the fossil fuel industries. Exactly. They consistently run ads about, like, you know, you should be aware of your climate footprint. And they teach you all these things about how green they are when they're still spilling oil. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a whole data war going on now. Yeah. And this was the sort of big headline kind of, I suppose this could be the start of it, really. It was the, it was the start of people being aware of all the data they could have online. Now, this documentary that, as I said, I was watching on Netflix, it's narrated by a guy called David Carroll, mostly. Um, and he was a professor who, during all this, found out about this data and applied through a British lawyer because of Cambridge Analytica being in the UK just to see the data that they had on him. Yeah, that's kind of the preface of where this documentary started. Yeah. He just wanted to see the information they had. That's all he wanted. He just wanted to see it. He didn't... He didn't want them to delete it. That's not what he was asking. He didn't want them to publish it. He just wanted to see it. And it went through all the systems. It got, they, they didn't give him the data by the deadline. It went to courts and he never got it. He never found out what data they had on him, which says a lot. They were hiding. Really. A lot that they were hiding. And similarly, you know, as the kind of documentary goes on, you realize that even when it became a legal obligation. And we're going to talk about GDPR and what it means for your data. But even as a legal obligation, they just didn't. Mm. Um, now, this, of course, applied to Trump, but it did also apply to the Brexit campaign and Leave.eu. Yes. Uh, though, of course, they claim to have only used it to set up the operation and not help run it. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. We don't... We know more about what happened in the Trump campaign than what we do with the Brexit referendum, but they were involved. That's, Either way, that's it what was we know. a systemic level of abuse of data. Absolutely. And it's, it is a must-watch documentary. Yeah, it's, it's really scary. It is terrifying. Yeah, it starts with this, and I just wanted to read this out as a quote. It starts... These digital traces of ourselves are being mined into a trillion dollar a year industry. We are now the commodity. But we were so in love with the gift of this free connectivity that no one bothered to read the terms and conditions. And that is exactly it. That is it. I, as I've never read the terms and conditions, I don't know what it says in there, but Effectively, we are just handing them our data. And before this point of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, we didn't know what that meant. And I think to many levels, many people still don't. No, I, I wouldn't say I do now, even after watching that and researching a bit. I still, I still don't I know what that means. I think people are aware of the potential danger, but they don't, 
they're still unaware of what the details are. Yeah. And that's really dangerous. It's, yeah, it is just kind of yeah. terrifying to think about. And, and David Carroll went on to say that... All of my interactions, my credit card swipes, web searches, locations, my likes, they're all collected in real time and attached to my identity, giving any buyer direct access to my emotional pulse. Armed with this knowledge, they compete for my attention, feeding me a steady stream of content built for and seen only by me. And this is true for each and every one of us. What I like, what I fear, what gets my attention, what my boundaries are, and what it takes to cross them. And that is exactly what they used to hit these persuadables. They and knew what, what their they boundaries used were. to destroy democracy. In a sense, yeah. In a I, sense. And in the documentary, they also talk about the fact that Cambridge Analytica have worked on multiple other election campaigns globally. Oh, they practiced. They practiced on smaller countries. Yeah. America was their kind of nuclear bomb after having, you know, shot missiles just into the ocean a yeah. little bit. Yeah, basically, that's just a yeah. good metaphor, to be honest. It's, they'd tested all of this stuff on places, I believe in Trinidad and Tobago, they, they did this. That was a big one, yeah. Um, and they've done this in places around Africa and the Middle East. Yeah. It's a weird one to get your head around. It really is. It really is. It's, we take, we take this connectivity for granted, as, you know, David Carroll said, it's, it's a part, an integral part of society and the way we live nowadays. It is. And I don't think we're necessarily all going to just disappear from social media because of its dangers. It's just awareness is necessary. Mm. And on awareness, we are very thankful in Europe and England, continuing after Brexit, to have GDPR. Yeah. You've probably seen emails from all these companies that you're on mailing lists of. And this on websites. Tw 2018 would have been the year of the inbox being filled with, we've updated our terms and conditions. Yes. Um, so yeah, European legislation that was introduced in 2018 that modernized data laws, given that they'd last been updated in the early 90s, um, and gave individuals rights over their information. The long, the, the, the short of it, I was going to say the long and short of it, but the short of it is people had to opt in to data collection. So no sites or services could automatically collect your data, and they had to be explicit that data was being collected. And that includes cookies, little web cookies. And people also have to opt in separately to email communication. So it immediately put a stop to kind of the abuse of email spam and newsletters, because a lot of sites used to say, sign me up and sign up for the newspaper, and you kind of had to do it all in one. Mm. And now they have to be separate. Uh, and of course, it kind of developed awareness around data collection, although I think people are very quick to just kind of tick the box. That's what I was going to say, is that actually there's almost an element of just it being so common. Now, every website you go on says, do you want to accept our cookies? Yes. You don't at, think about it. At least it's a conscious second step. It is. It puts a step in there, and it puts the word cookie in your face. Cookie. People know that cookies relate to the internet and not just the delicious baked goods. Would you like to explain cookies? I can do, yeah. So... It's, it's very, very simple, to be honest. It's basically, when you go to a website, it 
it downloads a cookie, which cookie. is literally just a line of text. It's not any program or anything. It's literally a line of text, which just basically your computer stores to say that you've visited that website. And it can store other user ID information and how many times you've visited the website sort of thing. So it basically just means when you go back to a website, the website knows that you've been to the website before, so you're not a new user, and it can then customize the experience. It's a, it, it can be a good thing. It makes the internet I think experience better. In 90% of cases, it is a good thing. Yeah. It's what keeps you signed into things. It's what kind of keeps your dark mode or your text sensitivity settings or whatever it is. Mm. Um, you know, the fact that when you can go back to a site and there's something still in your shopping cart from last time, that all relies on cookies. Yeah, they're essentially just little kind of, almost like little internet data bookmarks. Yeah. Basically. The issue is they can be abused. As with all of this stuff. As with everything, they can be abused. Um, cookies can work across multiple sites. So if a website makes use of, say, a Facebook embedded video, Facebook can then embed cookies through that website into your computer. And then tracking backwards, Facebook is then aware of not only your browsing information and habits on their site, which is a given, but also on every other site that happens to have a Facebook embed. And believe it or not, every article you've ever read that has a little Facebook share button is one of those sites. Yeah, which is the majority of articles. Which is the majority of articles. And many sites kind of, same with YouTube embedding, Google throws in their little cookies there. So with GDPR, um, the big thing is people can request for all of their data to be saved on them and provide it to them. So you are able to go to any organization to whom's website has your data and say, I would like my data. Mm. And they have a month to give it to you. Um, similarly, you can go to them and say, I'd like you to delete all my data. And they have a month to do it. They face huge fines if they don't do this and you report it. Uh, although, of course, you know, if you go to a site and say, I'd like you to delete everything, they'll probably say, well, we're going to delete your account with that because they have no account to hold. Yeah. It's not like you can get rid of all that data and keep using the site as you have been because, of course, the data is what makes the experience yours. Yeah, but it just gives people, I guess, a little bit of control. It gives people a huge level of control because if, if you want to completely de-Facebook, you know, instead of just deleting your Facebook account, you should actually go in and be like, I'd like to GDPR request you destroy everything. Mm. And then not only do you no longer have a Facebook account, but you also, they have no history of you ever having had a Facebook account. And any of the information that's got anything to do with you is gone, mm. including potentially what other people have posted. Because of course, if there's data on you in someone else's post, they have to get rid of that too. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. So it's, it's a much kind of, it does give a huge amount of control to the individual. But of course, you still have to take that first step of being willing to completely cut mm. off from a service. And it's not like a simple online thing. It's not, there's not like a button on their website to say, GDPR, I want to delete my information. Yeah, it depends on the website. Um, it does depend on the website, but a place like Facebook, it's not gonna be, it's not gonna be an easy thing to get them to do. You'll have to go through so many levels of customer support and all this sort of stuff to get exactly. to it. That people probably won't bother. I know it's very easy with Google and I heavily respect that. Uh, if you go to takeout.google.com, you can tick the boxes of what you want and you can download it all right there. Oh, I think I've done that actually. Yeah, download all the data I mean, that Google has on you. You, you, you. It takes a couple of days. Like you tick what you want, you select request and then they have to package it all into like a file. Okay, that's it's not huge. <laughs> it's huge. Like I, I did it recently and mine was like 20 something gigabytes. 
Oh, blimey, okay, yeah, no, yeah. that's not what I've done. Um, <laughs> so, of course, they can't just give it to you instantly. They have to upload it and prepare it. But within a day, you get it. Yeah. Um, and then you download it, and it's just a whole lot of crap to look through. It's actually really interesting. Yeah, um, I mean, I'd, I'd certainly happily look through. Yeah. Finally, data holders have to be completely transparent with within 24 hours if any data is compromised, damaged, leaked, or deleted. So if they get hacked and your email gets stolen, they have to tell you within 72 hours, which is just a great precaution against data selling, data lost, data theft, and all of that. It keeps people aware of where their information is. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it just... I think that's what's going to... There's going to be more of this in the coming years, decades, because Absolutely. information and data is so integral to the world now, as we're saying. It's regulation. That's, that's the only way that can this can be kept under control, really, is regulation and these sort of laws, because there has to be an ownership on these companies to respect people's data. And this is a huge step in regulation that partly led to a lot of companies actually blocking EU access for a fair amount of time. Um, if oh, you, did they? If you remember, shortly after G GDPR, a lot of American new news organizations just cut EU access for a few months because they rely so much on targeted ads, which is awful, um, mm. that they had to just completely deny any EU customers until they came up with a solution. But this is one of the things that these sort of laws force. They force people to come up with yeah. solutions. And they're important. Yeah. They're very important. Yeah, the only thing I want to add on this is, I mean, I, we sort of touched on it a bit with the cookies, but it's also whether people actually understand these rights. So we, as I said, well, people are building on these rights, but d does anyone really understand it other than the experts? I would hazard a guess at no. I'm going to go with no too. But that can change. In this final section, how to bother. That's what we're calling it. How to bother. How, How to bother. Uh, so there are kind of three major web browsers at the moment. There's Chrome, Firefox, and Safari. Chrome is definitely the easiest. It's the most universal. It's super simple, clean. It works. But it's, of course, owned by Google. Uh, therefore, it falls within their little monopoly of data and is to be avoided. Safari is lightweight and it's universal, but it's limited and restrictive. Like, there's so many additions and add-ons that you just can't get with it. Yeah, I don't like Safari. <laughs> now, the underdog here... Although obviously it's big, but it's not built into any service, is Firefox. It's owned by the nonprofit Mozilla. It's open source. You can look at the code, you can see exactly what it's doing. It's got tracking protection and a Facebook container built into it. So by default, it stops Facebook from doing anything outside of Facebook.com. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. I think I want to change because um, I'm currently using Google Chrome. Mozilla is, you know, they're all about kind of. The power being in individuals, not corporations. That's mm. their entire motto. And if you pair that with an ad blocker, you kind of immediately have a browser that's secure, ad-free, and lightweight, and highly functional. So this is a call. If you want a safe browser, get Firefox. Most of their options are on by default, but you can go through the settings and you know whack up the levels a little bit higher to be more restrictive. Download uBlock Origin. It's a great ad blocker. Yeah, I was actually just looking because I've got yeah. I've got AdBlock on on my computer, and I think I probably downloaded it relatively recently, probably between six months and a year ago. 
And I've just looked, I can click onto it and it tells me that it, it has blocked in total 469,109 ads in the time I've been using it. Um, similarly, you can get Privacy Badger, which is a Firefox and Chrome extension made by the Electronic Freedom Foundation. And that just basically destroys trackers and cookies. And finally, two sites worth knowing. The first is haveibeenpwned.com. <laughs> Pwned being P-W-N-E-D, you know, that term. Where you can type in your email address and it will tell you if it's been compromised. Um, okay. So this yeah. is this obviously like it doesn't tell you if someone's hacked your email. It's more that if you put in your email address, so I'll put in mine right now. So I've just gone to the website. Um, just have a look. And it will tell me that, oh no, what breaches were you pwned in? So uh, mine was June 2017, 8Tracks, uh, which is an online playlist service, suffered a data breach. In May 2019, Canva suffered a data breach. And in mid-2012, Dropbox suffered a data breach. So those are kind of three major ones right there. And it just gives you all the details right there. So I can see that 8Tracks, people would have lost emails, and IP addresses was what were shared there. On Canva, it was emails, usernames, cities of residence, and passwords. So if you had a password that you used on Canva, anywhere else, someone has it. And Dropbox, it was passwords as well. So, you know, it's a very useful site. Yeah, I've got I've got three on mine, it says. What are they? It's Town of Salem, which is a game mm -hmm. that I played like once with some friends. Intellimost. I don't know what Intellimost is. Huh. Which is interesting. And Warframe, which is, again is a game that I think I played once many years ago. Cool. And the last one is Terms of Service Didn't Read or TOSDR.org. On this site, uh, basically they get lawyers to read through the terms of services and class them to the good and bad things of them. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Okay, now, yeah, it's, it's a fairly small site. It's missing a lot of information that it could get. But for example, we'll just take Google because it's the top one. Um, Google gets a class C because it's okay but has some issues. Uh, the downsides are that they can collect, use, and share your location. They can read your private messages. Uh, you, agree, you agree to defend, indemnify, and hold them harmless in case of a claim related to you and the service. So you have to defend them in court. And it can track you on other websites. And it will use tracking pixels, web beacons, and browser fingerprinting. And blocking cookies could limit your ability to use Google. And Google can use all your content for all their existing and future services. So if you upload a really pretty picture, they technically own it. Wow. Anyway, there are many more, and you can go through yeah, them. Yeah, just scrolling through the yeah. list of them. And of course, you know, you can take like, okay, for example, we'll take SoundCloud, which has a class B. Uh, user accounts can be terminated. You stay in control of your copyright. The service provides archives. You know, these are all like pretty good things, but one of the negatives is if they go bankrupt, they can sell your data along with the company. That's, you know, not great, not terrible though. Um, but yeah, it's just very useful to be able to go through these and see what the goods and bads are. Facebook is very negative. Yeah, Facebook actually doesn't have a class, it says for me. Yeah. No class yeah. yet. Uh, but the top negative is your identity can be used in ads shown to other users. Oh, blimey. Blimey indeed. But yeah, on that note, I think we've come to the end of this episode. 
Yeah, I think we have. It's a it's a huge topic. It's it is, <sighs> and there's so much we haven't discussed, and there's so much we could discuss. I reckon. Yeah, go and have a look at these websites, and especially like yeah. how I've been pwned and stuff. You know, just see. It's a bit of it's. A- it's a bit scary to look at, to be honest. <laughs> it is. There's a little bit of a just overwhelmed amount of information that you get, and it really makes you think about your security. Yeah, it really does. Uh, on that note, sorry, this has been a depressing episode. Yeah. But watch The Great Hack on Netflix, check out those two sites, consider using Firefox, and make sure to subscribe to the podcast <laughs> on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to make sure you never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this, please share it with your friends, family, co-workers, and Mark Zuckerberg. Unlike videos and you blogs... You don't need to share it with Mark Zuckerberg. He's no, already, he'll have it anyway. <laughs> Unlike videos and blogs, we don't have an algorithm, so we need your help. We do indeed. So follow us on Instagram at assemble.it for a deeper look into the show and our own work, including behind-the-scenes outtakes, projects, and updates. Once more, remember to subscribe and share it among your friends, family, co-workers. Don't bother with suck. You'll see it anyway. And we'll see you in two weeks with the next episode. Thank you for listening.